Well, good morning, North Star and friends. If you've tuned in to this, we thank you. We hope that it's an encouragement to you uh, in such a time as this. Even in unique circumstances, the grace of God uh, is always victorious and it always overcomes obstacles. And so we pray that you are able to receive the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, of prayer, of the public reading of scripture, and that those means of grace bless you and bless your family uh, as you tune in. So I would like to begin with prayer. Father, you are good and you do good always. And I pray that everyone who hears this would be encouraged. I pray especially with a text like this uh, that we have under consideration today. I ask that you would give us understanding. These are not trite or trivial matters and they are not simple basic encouragement. Uh, they, they are exquisite encouragements. And I pray that we would have the understanding and attentiveness to understand uh, and to see what it is you have for us. I pray for each person listening to this, either today in the moment, live, or uh, days, weeks, years from now, that you would encourage them. As we look to Christ, as we seek to understand who he is, and what He has done for us, I pray that You would change our hearts. Change the way we see this world. Change the way we understand what's going on even now because of our view of Jesus. And I pray these things in His name for His sake. Amen. And if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We will actually be focusing on Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 2. But I want to begin reading in chapter 7, verse 11. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, meaning Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. 
For those who formerly became priests were made so without an oath. But this one, who was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We will try to be short and to the point and mainly encouraging. In this text, chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, our primary emphasis uh, is really within the theme of the entire book. If you go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, the author says, Consider Jesus. That in in light of this great work that He has done, this, this magnificent unveiling of God's plan in Christ, consider Him. Set your mind on Him. And for us today, this is, this is similar to the need to find some kind of foundation, some type of rock to set ourselves on, something to base our lives upon, something that is sure and steadfast. Consider Jesus. And we have a lot these days that we are considering. And my plea with you is that as we look at Jesus and consider him as our great high priest, that your minds would be shepherded, would be shunted, would be pointed in the direction of looking at Jesus in his glory as your great high priest. So there's a lot on our minds. There's a lot we're worried about. There's a lot that we are anxious about. Last week I made mention in my sermon that 32,000 people approximately had died so far from the coronavirus, so in a week's time we've doubled that number. And if you just look at any sampling of the news that is going on right now, it is massively discouraging, accurate or not. And so the believer is in a predicament. What will be the most significant things in our minds right now? 
Will it be the pandemic? Will it be economic upheaval? Will it be the politics? Or will it be Christ? Will it be His Gospel? Will it be His Kingdom? What really matters today? And this is a test. This is a test whether or not we will walk by faith in a time such as this. And there's a persistent misunderstanding in the church today about what it means to walk by faith. What is a faith-filled perspective? What is a faith-filled life? It's not plugging your ears, covering your eyes, and chanting, God is good, Jesus loves me, everything will be okay. Though those things are true, It's not walking in ignorance of what's going on. And it's not, well, the Lord is for sure coming back soon. Have you seen how bad everything is? Uh, Just hang on. Don't worry. It's all going to be over soon. It might be. But we don't know that. We're not supposed to know that. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. And that's not what it means to have faith. No, the life of faith in the midst of trial is to have your heart fixed and your mind focused on the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Not vague spirituality or vague motivational epithets. Jesus Christ Himself. That is what faith is about. And we must understand our world through the lens of the gospel, including the problem of evil. And we need to understand ourselves through the lens of the gospel. And we need to understand the gospel as primarily being about the revelation of the glory of God in Christ. And so the author says, now the point in what we are saying is this. In a few places, the Bible or the, the author uh, in different particular places will say, hey, here's why I said what I just said. Jesus does this a few times. John does this at the end of his gospel. And the author of Hebrews does it here. Here's why I told you what I just told you. And he's telling us what the point is. And the Bible's not being redundant. Um, It's not like he's just going to repeat what he just said. And this is why we read 7 verse 11 through the end to understand the context of why he's wanting to focus our attention back on what the point is. So you could really include all of chapter 1 through chapter 7 telling us who this one, this Jesus really is that we're supposed to set our minds on, the one we are to consider, the, the object of our faith. The whole book of Hebrews really is revealing who Jesus is through His work on our behalf. But particularly, it's the emphasis, as we saw in chapter 7, on Him being this new great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there's a sense of anticipation and eagerness as we've gone back into this ancient priesthood that predates the law. And we see that Christ arises in the likeness of Melchizedek and serves as our high priest. And you might be thinking right now, well, that's really interesting and 
may be fascinating from a theological standpoint or a literary standpoint or just a Bible nerd standpoint, but what does that really have to do with me? And hopefully the rest of our time will show that. But I want to give you an immediate application of this. This, this text says, now the point in what we are saying is this. The Bible has a real objective point. The Bible is a spiritual book in the sense that it is from God who is spirit and that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and deals with spiritual matters. But it is not a spiritual book in the sense that you have to leave your brain at the door and not treat it like a book written in plain language. It has an actual point. And the meaning of that actual point operates within the rules of the genres it contains. And the whole Bible operates within the confines of the ordinary rules of grammar. There's nothing magical about this book. The life change it promises is brought through you understanding and seeing the plain meaning of the text and embracing it as it ought to be embraced, as truth. Not by some mystical connection with the words or phrases, or sounds, or ethereal thoughts, or emotions, or vague perceptions of the mind. And you'll see how these two competing ways of seeing the Bible take a passage like this significantly differently. And how we cut ourselves off from the real blessing of this book if we approach it in the wrong kind of spiritual way. So the Bible has a point. And the author is telling us he has a point. And it's clear. All of this revisitation of the theology of Jesus being our high priest and not just a high priest, but in the order of Melchizedek, all of that has a point. And it has an important point, so much so that the author refocuses our attention to it. And these are people in peril, not of getting sick, but maybe losing their job, losing their homes, or losing their lives for being Christians. And the way the author encourages them is, look to Jesus, your great high priest. And it might sound tone deaf to you, sitting at home, quarantined now for three to four weeks, depending on when you began. Three or four weeks, or maybe longer in front of you. How does this help me today? Well, the author gives us a qualification first. And the next phrase, which we'll look at, it says, we have such a high priest. And that's, that's really the, the heart of this passage. We have such a high priest. You'll hear that come up over and over in this message. But I want to deal in the beginning, before we get to all the different blessings and glories of him being our high priest, I want to address this one word, we. This we here is different than the we in the beginning of the verse. Look at it. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Those are two different meanings. The we, the first one, means the author himself and his ministry team, most likely. Or it's just the royal we. The point in what we are saying, who's been speaking? It's the author. 
and maybe the scribe who's writing it down and his team. We are making this point. And the point is that we have such a high priest. And that second we refers to those who trust in Jesus. He's talking about those who trust in Christ, the author and the hearers together. And there's a great assumption that comes along with a word like this. Many preachers fall prey to this great assumption. And the assumption is that, for the most part, everyone hearing the message is right with God and does, in fact, have Jesus as high priest. The author has already guarded this we, if you'll allow me to speak this way, through warnings he has already given us against falling away in chapters 6 and 3 and drifting away in chapter 2. So he's already warned them pers- like several times now to be sure that you're actually in, that you haven't deceived yourself and fallen into a false profession pretending to yourself, presenting to everyone else that yes, you are in fact in Christ, you have Him as your great high priest, but you actually don't. It's false. And this was the reason for our entire series on the Gospel that we just concluded last week. This one word and clarifying why it's important to understand whether or not that we applies to you is why we spent that many weeks on the Gospel. Faith in Christ through the gospel and the perfection of his sacrifice is how you enter this we category here. And on the handout, if you've downloaded that or you're looking at that, you'll see on the back side of the page or the second page that I've tried to describe the gospel in terms of Jesus being the high priest or the mediator. So it means essentially the same thing. Mediator, high priest. So I just want to say right now, as as a call to anyone who might be viewing this, repent and believe in the gospel. All of the blessings that I'm about to explain don't apply to you unless you are in Christ. Unless it, in fact, is the case that you have repented of your sins and believed in the gospel for forgiveness for righteousness and reconciliation. And so the author continues, we have such a high priest. So I want to begin with encouragement. That's the theme for today. If you are in Christ, if you are in, truly in this we category here, you have such a high priest. One who is high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is also the son of David, who will rule forever, fulfilling God's promise. And you might say, well, so what? Cool, maybe. That's really interesting. But how does this help me today? Don't you know there's a global pandemic going on? At this point, you need to remember why we need a priest in the first place. 
You don't really understand how significant it is that Jesus is your high priest unless you feel at all the need for a priest. God always works through a mediator. There's always someone in between us and God because no one has ever seen God. God does not have a body like man. He dwells in unapproachable light. And at the same time, in thick darkness, he splits the earth when he sets his foot on the mountain. And with him accompanying his glory is the braying of the trumpet that increases in intensity always. You can't approach him. Your mind can't appropriate him at all. And so even in that instance at Mount Sinai, God brings Moses near to be the mediator between God and the people. It's always going to be this way. Our flesh, even perfected human flesh, cannot perceive, appreciate, or enjoy the glory of God in its unleashed form. It would undo us. This is why the cherubim and the seraphim cover their faces and their feet in the presence of the Almighty. There's always a mediator. There's always someone standing in between God and man. So Christ being the mediator is the best news because as the God-man, He perfectly represents God to us because He is perfectly God, and He perfectly represents us to God as the perfect man. And here you should see a major implication for today and forever. This is throughout all Scripture. Particularly in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews You can't receive any blessing, any help, or have any love from God except that which is in and through Jesus Christ. And you cannot relate to God at all except in and through Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is how God loved the world that He sent His Son. All of the blessing, all of the love, all of the care, all of the redemptive power and the Spirit are concentrated in the person of Jesus. Jesus Himself is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. And the Spirit Himself comes primarily to glorify the Son. It is Jesus Christ. It will always be Jesus Christ. So stop trying to live a non-Christ-centered Christianity. You have such a high priest one who is divine and more glorious than any human priest could ever be, yet one who is near, who took on flesh and walked among us. And I'm not being anti-Trinitarian at all. I'm not trying to de-emphasize the Father or de-emphasize the Spirit. The Son alone perfectly reveals the Father. And the Son alone gives the Spirit without measure to those who trust Him. 
And this is where what we talked about earlier comes in. If you're looking to this book or to my, to my words to send some kind of spiritual force into your life and to make everything better, or if you're expecting me to take whatever the text is and boil it down into three to four ways it can help us be happy while the world burns, then uh, you came to the wrong place. The Bible states these realities as rock-solid facts on which to build your life. We have such a high priest. It's real. He's really there. One who is also ruler like Melchizedek, never beginning, never ending, more ancient, but newer in the sense of time that Christ takes up the mantle of this priesthood that even predates God changing Abram's name to Abraham. So how does this help us today? If the Bible does give this to us as rock-solid fact on which we can build our lives, on which we can set our hope and trust, how ought that help us today? I'll give you a few ways. And hopefully as we discuss these, you'll begin to see more and more how this is so massive. And it's probably the most important thing for you to think about. And I'll do this by comparing it to a few things. Let's, let's consider Jesus Christ being your high priest versus Catholicism. And I apologize to any of my Catholic friends who may listen to this or see this. But I can't understand the appeal of the frailty of a human system whereby a pandemic comes in and shuts it all down. And the encouragement is, well, in the meantime, while you can't have these human priests to offer confession or to give you the sacraments, go directly to God Himself through Christ. Why aren't we doing that anyway? Just as we read in Hebrews 7, verse 27, He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. I don't need sinful people to stand between me and Christ. Christ is the mediator. He is the one between me and the Father. Only Christ. And also, let's compare it. Um, so, compare it to the frailty of their their uh, their sin as well. It's not just that they're mortal; it's that they're sinful, and they've got to go to God for forgiveness. They've got to make uh, confession. And so a person standing in between you and God, who's got his own sin issues to work through, that's not helpful. Christ never sinned. And He offered up His own self as the perfect sacrifice. So we have such a high priest. He's not fragile. He's not at risk to be shut down due to a pandemic. And He's immediately accessible. You don't have to go drive somewhere to access your high priest. You don't have to go to Mass. You don't even have to come to church to access your high priest. If you're in Christ, He is your high priest now. 
Also, let's consider Christ as our high priest versus the Levitical system. Whether the one in ancient times, more recent times, or what people think might happen in the future. Consider this. What offering do you bring? Is it acceptable? Is it perfect? Is it completely without blemish? Is your life worthy to draw near? Are you acceptable to come before God? Do you even have the right to pray? Or ask God for His blessing? Many of the Levitical priests died because they were unworthy to approach. Even the sons of Aaron made one misstep in bringing the wrong kind of incense and fire broke out from the ark and consumed them. But no, in Christ we have such a high priest, one who is always qualified and perfect to minister on your behalf and mine. You are not your own priest. Let's also consider... Jesus as our high priest versus the old covenant. This is actually the direction the author is going. Much of the rest of chapter 8 is mainly about this new covenant that our great high priest mediates and how it's superior to the old covenant. The heartbeat of the new covenant is this, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. We have such a high priest who is so significant and different and final in his ministry that it requires the removal of the whole old covenant and the beginning of a new covenant. It's, it's almost like you're, you've got 10,000 gallons to fit into a little cup that you would fit into your cupboard at home. Jesus even compares it to old and new wineskins. The old isn't going to work to hold this. It's bigger. It's more glorious. It, it, it's all-encompassing. It's not just for national Israel. It's for all people, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And it's eternal. The new covenant is permanent. Also, it's important to consider Christ as our high priest versus some higher spirituality. Notice what he's saying. We have. This is present tense. It's true for you. It's true now. Or, and even it can be now, if, even if today you are as outside of Christ as you were when you were born in sin. But today you can have Christ now as your high priest. So this isn't some higher version of Christianity for you to think this way. This is basic Christianity. Think of it this way. When the son of a king is born, the firstborn son of a king, he is the first in line of succession. Does he know that? Not at all. Does he have any conception of the responsibilities and privileges it will mean one day of him being king? Not at all. But he is. 
So you may not understand or think of Christ being your high priest and all that that means. And what great emotional, spiritual, life-changing release that can bring. But He is. You have Him now as your high priest. We have such a high priest. We have Him now. Not one day in the future. And not in some mystical sense that needs another human mediator to help us. If you are in Christ, He is your high priest. So one last comparison. Consider this. Jesus Christ being our great high priest versus works and ritual. You could put together a very long list of do's and don'ts from the Bible. But lists of do's and don'ts are only helpful if you're doing them out of love and devotion to this one who is your high priest. Otherwise, they're worthless. All of our religion and the definition of holiness, the definition of wholeness as a person, and the definition of life, a life that pleases God, and the focal point of our love, the object of our affection, the one person we obey and serve is Jesus Christ. So be careful. Not God in some vague, monotheistic, American evangelical view. We're not just theists. We're Christians. It's Christ. Jesus is Lord. That's the claim of Christianity. Many people agree that there is a God. Our claim is that Jesus is that God. Christ is Lord. We have such a high priest. Not one who ministers within a religion, but the one who is Himself the summation of the entire Christian religion. This is how Spurgeon put it. Beloved, the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ contains in it nothing so wonderful as Himself. It is a mass of marvels. Christian religion is a mass of marvels. There's tons of interesting things, marvelous things about it. But He is the miracle of it. The wonder of wonders is the wonderful Himself. If proof be asked of the truth which he proclaimed, we point men to Christ himself. His character is unique. Meaning, in the true sense, one of a kind. There's no one like him. So we have such a great high priest. Such a high priest. Let's look at how the author uh, dresses up this claim. He says, one who is seated. This implies that his work is done. It's completed. There is no lingering part of this work or this ministry that he needs to complete in order to keep that position. He's going to continue being high priest forever. Adult life is often about uh, remembering all the things you've got to do just to continue living. And the long list of all the things you've got to do just to continue living a normal life, piling up and forgetting and getting delayed and scurrying around while we try to figure out how to just live. 
Christ is seated. He's not scurrying around trying to hold on to this priesthood. Jesus says, even from the cross, it is finished. And He says to the disciples before He's taken back up into heaven, all authority has been given to Me. It's done. No one can unseat Him as high priest. There's no election every four years for high priest. There's no impeachment that can threaten His priesthood. There's no department of justice that can impede His work and service on your behalf and on God's behalf for you. Nothing can ever happen to undermine His effectiveness in His ministry to you. And He will never do anything that is not totally perfect and within the scope of that ministry for you. He will never abdicate being high priest. We have such a high priest. His position is not in question. He will forever be this great high priest for you and for me. And not just seated, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You have to go all the way back to Hebrews 1.13 where God proclaims to the Son, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you remember back that far, we preached on that text back in December of 2018. This carries a sense or the idea that the Father is actually working for the Son. He's accomplishing things out in the world for His Son. And the image of the revelation to John is that Jesus returns one day as a divine warrior. So He is working to subjugate all His enemies to Him. So that will be true one day. But even over and above and around and in and through the visible return of Christ to slay the last of His enemies with the sword coming out of His mouth, the Father is yet, even now, at work to put all His enemies down and to make them into a footstool for His feet. Understand that God is providentially orchestrating the flow of human history to do just that. It's not out of control. And if you understand your Bible, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you can understand what's going on. The Father is at work to subject all of the enemies of Christ to Him and to make them into a footstool for His feet. We have such a high priest one with the Father, and the Father Himself works to subject all His enemies to Him. He's at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heaven. These are unimaginable places. And they're more real than anything you currently see in your room. Whether you're sitting on a couch, you've got your TV or computer there, this place, this throne room of heaven is more real in the most fundamental sense than all of that. And that is where Christ is. He's really there. It's not just an imagination or some fancy legendarium that we hold to and gives us some encouragement. It's really real. And it's more real than what we see. He's really there ruling as King of Heaven. 
the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the great High Priest, the better Adam, the better Melchizedek, the true Israel, the better Moses, the better Joshua, the prophet, the suffering servant, the faithful one, the good shepherd, the heir of all things, and today he can be yours. But he's not just sitting. He's not just sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's also ministering, a minister in the holy places. Lest we think that Jesus is just done hanging out, sitting down, the author quickly tells us that he's doing something. His ministry as high priest is different than him being the sacrifice. Okay, I need you to understand this. He was offered up, he offered himself us up once for all time. He's never going to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So it is on the basis of his death and his resurrection that he becomes the high priest. But he continues as high priest. He continues ministering as high priest. And he will never stop being so. We have such a high priest. He never, he's never stopping, never tiring of his ministry to the Father on your behalf and on the Father's behalf to us. He needs no sleep. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't get tired. He's a minister in the holy places always for you, for his church. He's a minister in the holy places. There is no describing these places. The author doesn't even make an attempt. They're out of reach of our imagination. But this is where the most important things about you and me happen. Just like for the nation of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle represented the place where not just the sins of individual people were dealt with, but all the sins of the nation together were dealt with. and Where God's mercy was given. We have such a high priest, the only one qualified to walk in that holy place. Not once a year, and not with great peril, but always and with great joy. So understand, He is in the holy places and He is sitting at the right hand and He's doing many other things. His ministry is dynamic enough to incorporate all of those locations and many more because He is divine. He's so glorious and so powerful. A passage I considered preaching today just because it's been on my mind since the beginning of this crisis is the letters to the seven churches in the Revelation to John. And in chapter 1, John hears someone speaking behind him with a voice like a trumpet and he turns and he looks and he sees these seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches of Asia Minor and he sees the one as the Son of Man, glorious in his appearance, walking among the seven golden lampstands and then he tells John to write letters to them. And what we find in the content of these letters is that Jesus walks among the churches as high priest, as minister in the holy places, at the same time, He is walking in and among the churches. And He knows our works. 
He knows our faith. He knows our perseverance, our patience, and He knows where we need to repent. And He exhorts us to do so. And He even threatens, if you don't repent, I will take away your lampstand. Meaning, you'll cease being a church. Understand, we have in Christ such a minister who's in the holy places, always ministering in that holy of holies in heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high with all the rights of being the ruler of the universe. And he is walking in and among the churches, maintenancing them, making sure that we remain faithful and exhorting us to repent. We have such a great high priest, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And all of that power and magnitude is concentrated on His ministry and care for His church. So He is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We have such a high priest who is himself the focal point of our worship. He ministers in the eternal, heavenly, holy place created by God. This is real. How much of your life really changes one way or the other if this is real or not? That there is a holy of holies in heaven where Christ currently is ministering on your behalf. We say this is our book and that we believe it. We say that for the most part it changes our life, that it's our, you know, it's our the lamp to our feet in some sense. But is this just a nice story for you or nice hyper spiritual things to think about that Jesus is currently ministering in the Holy of Holies in heaven for your sake? I want to ask you a question to really try and push the envelope of the significance of this and see, really test the boundaries of your faith and belief in this and seeing how significant it is for you. What if, by some miracle, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be resolved? Let's say we received notification tomorrow that there was peace and they decided on how to divvy up the land and Israel uh, had control of all of Jerusalem. And let's say that the tabernacle or even the temple was rebuilt. And let's imagine that this beautiful temple was built perfectly to the biblical specifications. And let's further assume that they could find someone who's the true descendant of Aaron. And they found people who were true descendants of Levi and installed them all as the priests and the Levites in this temple gilded with gold and everything, and the altar set up and the fire is started. And they begin offering sacrifices. And you can go. Flights are really cheap right now. 
you decide, well, I got this money coming from the government. Maybe I'll get to go see this spectacular sight. Maybe I'll buy a goat or even an ox, or if you're not very wealthy, two turtle doves, and I'll offer sacrifices to God. Would you do that? If you answer yes, you don't understand or feel the significance of these verses. Jesus now ministers as great high priest in the Holy of Holies in heaven that God set up, not man. This is the point the author of Hebrews is making. Don't go back the old way. Don't go back to the old covenant. You have something better in Christ. And it is perceived by faith and appropriated by your heart, not a physical place you would go. Do you believe Jesus when He says to the woman at the well, the woman asks Him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where, we're, where people ought to worship. Jesus answered her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is ministering as high priest of a new covenant in the true tent set up by God in heaven right now. And you thinking on Him and setting your hope on Him is better than anything you could do in a physical temple. Because He works now to mediate this new covenant that you've been invited in. Not by man. There's a lot of cleverness and ingenuity that we can muster up in our hearts to try and build out a religion, build out cool and intricate ways, maybe even a real replica of the old temple. But here the author insists that this is the true worship, the true house, the true holy of holies set up by God. few points of application as we close. You should read the rest of chapter 8 uh, in your time together as the author explains how significant this new covenant that Christ mediates is. Really dig into that. That this is the covenant you are under, not the old covenant. And I want you to also understand your fear, and your anxiety in light of you having Christ as your great high priest currently ministering on your behalf in the Holy of Holies in heaven. What have you to fear? It's not that just in some vague sense God's going to help you through it or God's going to be close to you and make you feel happy while the world burns. It's that Christ always makes intercession for you. He always is presenting Himself as the sufficient sacrifice for you. You are accepted with the Father in heaven on the basis of His ministry to you. 
And like I said earlier, even if now you are completely outside of Christ, this can be yours today. Repent and believe in the gospel. Flee to Christ. This pandemic and all the tragedy and suffering that exists in this world, the tragedy and suffering of something like abortion that's going on and has been going on for years that even outstrips the disaster that is the coronavirus, none of that compares to the horror of hell. What we deserve to be cut off from God's goodness and love forever because we have rejected it. And Christ, as your high priest, offers himself as the sacrifice to pay for that penalty. So that you could be one with God. The church's mission is also different in light of Jesus Christ being our high priest. It's about Christ, it's not about our churches being successful or people filling this room. It's not about our different ministries being successful and raising money or doing all sorts of good things. Those might be part of the equation, but that's not the point. The point is Christ and extending the offer. This one can stand between you and the Almighty God before whom you will give an account. Will you have Him? Will you trust in Him to be that one who will stand between you and God? And It's extending that offer and exalting Christ and pointing, even within the church, not just to non-believers, but encouraging our brothers and sisters to look on Him, to perceive Him by faith in that way. It really does change your life. I want you to understand yourself also in light of such a high priest. If Christ or since Christ has made offering for the sins of his people for all time, then you don't have to earn God's approval. You don't have to earn his grace or his love that that distorts and destroys the whole idea of grace and love christ has already worked and offered sacrifice and offered his life sufficient for all his people if you are in christ if you trust him in this way standing between you and god you are fully accepted fully embraced and fully loved in him and nothing you can do can change that And that frees us. Instead of being under some vague legalism to continue to try and earn God's favor, it liberates us. It introduces us into a life of freedom whereby we do the things that make for obedience out of love and joy. And as a final exhortation, please fix your minds on Christ where He is now. And what He promises to do one day in His return. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus Christ. I pray that as 
we have considered what it means for him to be our high priest, that you would confront our misunderstandings, that you would confront our laziness in considering such glorious things. I ask that you would convict us of our lack of zeal for true knowledge of you and true knowledge of our high priest. Change us through this view, this vision of Christ. That as we perceive, behold the glory of the Lord, please transform us from one degree of glory to the next as we wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.